They had no idea this was coming. There was no campaign. There was no, there was no central organized field operation. There was no media operation. There was nothing but Trump's Twitter account and a stream of bullshit. Today on Key People, I sit down with Rick Wilson, a seasoned GOP strategist and the self-described crazy uncle of the Never Trump movement. Okay, so here today with Rick Wilson. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. So, you know, I guess give a little background. Um, you know, you've obviously done a lot of things, kind of have had a bit of a rise on Twitter over the past couple of years um, as probably the inadvertent head of the, you know, never Trump movement or at least a key player within that. Um, and I do want to get into that. I want to start a little bit on kind of your background because it's like you've sort of amassed probably followers, including a lot of people on the left. And in fact, your background is you're a, you know, as you put it, GOP media guy. So you know, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Happy to. I mean, well, I, I've spent basically 30 years in Republican politics. My first big campaign was 1988 with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And I was a field director for a big part of Florida and uh, went to Washington, worked in the administration uh, for this guy named Dick Cheney at the Pentagon, who you might've heard of um, when he was secretary of defense. And after Bill Clinton was elected, we came back to Florida, and uh, and I went into basically the consulting side of the political business and had a long and very successful career. We did work all over the country. Did, I've done campaign stuff and ads in, I guess, 38 states over my career. Um, and by any standard, I was, you know, one of those guys that you call when you want the nasty negative TV ads. I was the, you know, the, 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 the black hat guy who comes in and makes the ad that everybody goes, Oh my God, that's so terrible. I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, eh. so, but, and if I'm not the father of never Trump, I'm, I'm, I'm at least the crazy uncle. Um, but I just looked at this thing in 2015 when he got in the race and I said, you know, this guy is not a conservative. This guy is not a Republican. He is something different. He is, you know, Trump has always been kind of sui generis and uh, his own creation. But I looked at it as a risk that would take this country in a direction that was authoritarian, that was statism. Um, and, and the nationalist populism that he espouses leads to very dark places. And so I became one of the folks that, that was willing, on my side, one of the few that was willing to stand up and speak out and and to go at this guy and so it's been a very long journey since then it's been quite a ride since then because you know we don't live in an era with normal political parties anymore there's like basically enforcers in each party making sure you're exactly on the ideological you know checklist every day and that's not how i roll i've been around the block a few times i've done been to this rodeo a few times and so i just wasn't going to sit back and let this thing and let this thing meander on and and not face up to the fact that Donald Trump was an existential threat to conservatism. Yeah, I mean it's um it was pretty profound, you know, what happened. I remember, you know, watching election night and I, you know, bought into the five thirty-eight uh <laughs> uh narrative, um, as did a lot of people. And I remember you had tweeted something out it. This one really stuck with me. because uh, it was early in the evening, everyone thought, you know, she's got this, and and that's not to say you were necessarily Hillary supporter, um, obviously being a Republican uh, and a, a true, you know, conservative. Um, but I remember you, you said it was something like, uh, 
your candidate didn't lose. He didn't, you know, he self-immolated and da 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 da. You you weren't cheated. You weren't because that that was the narrative. He was like, it's rigged, it's rigged. And then all of a sudden he won. And yeah. I always remember the article that said when he won, it's like he's apparently sat there in silence because I don't know. Did you think he planned to win? Absolutely not. Listen, I can tell you this for a fact. I was talking to reporters, national reporters, that were telling me, oh my God, Kellyanne Conway just called me and she took a shit on Reince Priebus. And Reince Priebus blamed Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon's blaming Paul Manafort. And Manafort's blaming Lee Wendowski. This, this circular firing squad was going on. I was getting phone calls from Trump people, senior Trump people. Like, ah, I can't wait till we can all be on the same team again. Oh, this fucking guy, he's an asshole. You can't, I got war stories I'm going to tell you. You're going you're gonna to lose your mind. This was at 7.30 that night. Right. They thought, okay. they thought they had lost. They had no idea this was coming. There was no campaign. There was no, there was no central organized field operation. There was no media operation. There was nothing but Trump's Twitter account and a stream of bullshit. So they had no clue they were going to win. This was not planned. This was, and that's, it showed from the very second. He was in shock. And... I mean, he's sitting there in the Oval Office with Obama, like the next day, like, well, you know, President Obama, very good. Uh, it's like, wait a minute, I thought he founded ISIS. What, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it it it, it was really a, a very remarkable moment, I think, and a very and a very uh, a very telling kind of of clarity about who they really were. These guys, the, everything about this is contingent. It's impulsive. It's half-assed at best. I mean, if they have a half-assed plan, that means they've really worked hard at it. Um, but most of it was no, should not have surprised anyone how the first year went, how the first year and a half has gone, because they're not organized people. They are not deep thinkers. They are not, they are not cogent. Donald Trump does not read. He does not process information like a normal person does. He watches television. And he works on his impulses and his instincts and his quirks and his personality flaws. And these things are not how you govern, uh, you know, the United States of America by any normal presidential standard. And there, the shakiness of Trump on every subject always validates my decision. He was never going to be a good president. He was never going to get to the point where he, there is no better version of Donald Trump. There is no... There is no hidden genius of Donald Trump. When these people say, oh, he's playing 87-dimensional chess, and it's just that... No, it's not. He's guessing. He's just doing what's in his head that, that second. It's always a line of shit. And it's amazing the kind of thought process you go through. I remember even trying to rationalize it. There was, you know, there was a, a rationalization of, oh, how is the Electoral College versus popular? That's the obvious stuff, but when you move beyond that, there was a lot of stuff... You know, guys like, I don't know, you know, Bill Mitchell and, and those guys that are really in the tank for him, you know, they sort of, you know, it's almost like this level of delusion. Uh, you're taking off your glasses now. I see. Yeah. And it's like they're sitting there and it's like, you guys don't even know what level he's operating on. And I'm just like, do you really believe that? Like, I, that's the part there, that there, there are a lot of them that really do. They really believe that Donald Trump has some hidden genius some esoteric knowledge and wisdom that only he possesses and that the rest of us just can't, the rest of us can't perceive this extra dimensional being that he represents. And he, it's a, it's a fairly understandable and explicable cognitive reach for these folks. Guys like Bill Mitchell and Jim Hoft and, and all the Breitbart Stooges, all these people, they share two big things. They have a gigantic inferiority complex. 
It is the definitional quality of all of them, okay? And so they have gone through life feeling like they're losers. They've gone through life feeling like people look down on them. They finally had this avatar. And so they, they, they imbue him with all these things. It's like, oh, he's the, he's, it's like a cargo cult in the, in the 1940s on Pacific Islands. They would build airplanes out of bamboo to bring back the cargo gods. These guys believe that Donald Trump is something beyond you know, the power of the establishment to crush and the, you know, he's, that he's so unique and so special that only he can do these things. Getting lucky with a boost from Vladimir Putin is not being some, some 10th level genius. Being, uh, being blessed with the worst Democratic candidate you could have picked up out of the list was not political genius. This guy's had some good breaks and he's had some help from the outside and he had a very complicit media, by the way, right, left, and center, that right. focused exclusively on him in the campaign and gave him a billion three in free media. Um, but these people are desperate to have Donald Trump make their lives meaningful. They are desperate to have Donald Trump, you know, say great things about them. You know, you're the smart ones. You're the elite ones. You're the geniuses. You have a better boat. Yeah, than literally, those guys. you're the elite. Not and he doesn't get right. It like and, that. Yeah. And I get that their lack of achievement and accomplishment and frustrations with the world, because a lot of these people that that are big Trump supporters feel like the world is a hostile system arrayed against them. And I get that feeling like somebody can who's going to be their angel of vengeance makes them feel good, but. They, they, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a novel approach to try to get self-worth. For sure. For sure. I guess a little bit about the anatomy of his victory, and then I kind of want to move on to where we're at now, but, um, you know, the anatomy of his victory in the sense of, I think even, you know, someone like you, I, I don't think you were necessarily expecting him to win. You know, I think we all had math, right. And, 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 and I understand it, statistics and polling, um, and, and, and look, the narrowness of the victory is a very telling artifact of this thing. I mean, look, we're talking about 70,000 votes in five states. Yeah, you factor in like the Jill Steins, the Gary it's, Johnson. It's de minimis, yeah. okay? The narrowness of that achievement speaks to the focus of the Russian intelligence operation against us. We know that they were playing in a lot of these places. We know that they were pushing their Facebook messaging out to a lot of the targeted voters in these states. That's not the only reason he won. It is also because Hillary's campaign was a Potemkin village and largely incompetent, and she's a terrible candidate. And, you know, I, I know for a lot of Republicans, they were like, oh, Hillary's the Death Star. She's amazing. She's going to be so intimidating. Well, I was the communication strategist for Rudy's 2000 Senate race against Hillary. I can tell you back then, she had one thing going for her when we went out and polled and focus grouped. People were like, well, Bill treated her awfully. Yeah. She needs, it's her turn. Bill was a bastard to her, and 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 you know now she deserves her chance. She never had a hard race. When Rudy got out due to prostate cancer and other issues, girlfriend, all that stuff. Rick Lazio, who was a very affable guy, a very pleasant fellow, very nice guy, loved to death. But you can't beat a celebrity with a nobody, and so he got his head handed to him. Well, she ran a re-election that was nothing. It was a total nothing burger. And then she ran against Barack Obama, who cut off her head. She's a bad candidate. She was always a bad candidate. 
always a bad, horrible, no good candidate. So the fact that they didn't go to Wisconsin, they didn't campaign heavily in these places, that they spent a lot of time running down a lot of rabbit holes, you know, redounded to Trump's benefit, obviously. You know, it is the narrowness of that victory that that is still a very striking thing. And whether people, you know, I understand the emotional desire on the on the side of the Democrats to say, oh, well, you know, it's not real because the popular vote was three million for Hillary. Doesn't matter. No matter how many field goals I kick, if I'm if I'm you know playing pool, it doesn't matter. The rules are the electoral college. You play that game, or you're not playing the game at all. Or you change the rules. Or you change the rules if you think you can. But, you know, that's a constitutional lift. That's not just a legal lift. That's a constitutional lift. And this country is not really good at constitutional amendments. They're meant to be hard. They're meant to be... As they should be. Right. They're meant to be... Easier than in a state, right? Right. They're meant to be non-trivial. And so getting getting an electoral college change is going to require two-thirds of the states and a lot of work and a lot of congressional compliance. And it's it's just... I mean, there's a, it's a very long shot. You, you have a much better chance of going out and just running a regular good presidential campaign with a good candidate and devoting your energies to that rather than trying to hack the code in the system. You know, kind of flash forward into where we are now. What has happened is a very clear division has emerged in the, you know, can we even call it the Republican Party anymore versus you know, GOP, right? Whatever you want to call it, you know, it's like, so you've got, and just focusing even on the personalities, right? You've become a bit of a personality in that that space, at least publicly. I'm sure, you, obviously, you were a behind-the-scenes player for a while. But what was fascinating to me was to see, you know, you had Ted Cruz, a more, you know, textbook conservative, guys like that, who you had like guys like Glenn Beck that were, you know, all in for him, were never Trump. But then the shift that occurred, and it's like on the the, the most extreme side of that, you had guys like Rush Limbaugh, who he kind of straddled the line a little bit. Now he's come a little bit around to Trump. He stopped short of being a total kiss ass. But then you've got like Sean Hannity, who's like, it's like bizarre how it's like, I may not have agreed with him on a lot of things, but I didn't think he was this much of a, a shill. It's like, what happened? What's the word anymore? I mean, if Donald Trump came to a sudden halt, Sean Hannity's head would pop through his diaphragm and out of his mouth. I mean, this is a guy who is so utterly, completely dedicated um, to Trump. I mean, he, he is the Lord Ha-Ha of this, uh, you know, to use a World War II propaganda analogy of this operation. He is, he is all in all the time, and he has monetized it beautifully, okay? There is a hermetic media world on the Trump right that is comprised of Trump's Twitter feed and Twitter. The cluster of, of right-wing media sites that vary in credibility and intensity, but you know, at the top you've got uh, of the intensity level, you've got the crazies. You've got Gateway Pundit, you've got Breitbart, you know, all these nutcases who are out there. Then you've got these pro-Trump, what I call the click conservatives, who are very driven by web traffic and very driven by ad revenue and very driven by trying to chase the dragon of Trumpism because there's a large audience of Republicans and they want to grab those people. And so that's like the Federalists. They've gone all in on Trump. You know, the nothing, nothing, nothing he does isn't excusable. Everything, you know, that everything has a reason. It's always the deep state, you know, never Trumpers conspiring against him, et cetera. And then you've got the sort of broader conservative um, imprints like National Review, Weekly Standard, et cetera, who, you know, I would say that they are Trump agnostic. There are days when they praise things that he does and outcomes from the, from his work. 
Um, and there are days that they are, you know, justly skeptical. Um, but that environment that, that it exists has Fox at the top of its pyramid. Okay. Roger Ailes built a beautiful money-making enterprise, makes a billion dollars a year, a billion dollar profit. And every year since 1996, it has grown. It has grown because its audience, that it, they found an audience in 96 and that audience back then was around 50 years old. That audience stuck with them and kept growing. Now that audience is around 70 years old. That's why Fox's advertising load is catheters, right, right. funeral insurance, reverse mortgages, all that stuff. It's an old audience, but those people vote and yes. those people spend money. Okay. And so, you know, they have fed them what they wanted and then they fed them more. And it's like a goose when you're trying to make, you know, uh, when you're trying to make, uh, you force them to get fat, to make great pate. Okay. You keep feeding them and you keep shoving it down them. And, and, and so the, the, their load for what it takes to make them excited about a story has gotten greater and greater and greater over time. Okay. So now it can't just be these evil liberal Democrats aren't going to let us, you know, uh, pursue Al Qaeda. Now it's the Democrats are in league with Al Qaeda and ISIS and they want to come here and impose Sharia law. And there's a war on Christmas, all this. And so it gets more and more Baroque and exotic all the time. And so now you have Sean Hannity, a guy who's like, Seth Rich was murdered by Hillary Clinton and the Awan brothers are, are secretly, you know, ISIS agents in the Congress working for Deborah Wasserman and Schultz. And these elaborate conspiracy, Pizzagate, all these things, they've become the, the, the sort of uh, IV drip of kookiness that the audience there now requires. It's going to be a really interesting moment. There are two big interesting moments for Fox coming up. One is when Rupert dies. Right. Sure. Okay. When Rupert goes, the sons are, James and Lachlan both are not their father. Now, they're not going to blow up billions of shareholder value. Okay. But there will be a time when they realize their audience has aged out and there is a moment where any reality show or any television series jumps the shark. There's a time when things just change. Even great television shows. Eventually you're like... <sighs> Larry David left in season seven of Seinfeld. Exactly. Okay. So at some point the shark gets jumped. At some point there's a moment where you know the curtain gets pulled back a little bit. And people go, oh, for sake, I can't, I just can't ride this train anymore. I'm convinced that Fox is going to remain a very powerful voice on the right for a long time. But there are factors that they can't control. And the machine that Ailes built, and Bill Shine, his deputy, who is now White House Deputy Communications Director and Deputy Chief of Staff, the machine they built was staffed with a bunch of people who have built a product they know how to replicate over and over again. Those people, you know, uh, there has been some disruption there. You've seen the departure of guys like Bill O'Reilly and, 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 uh, not, not Greg Gutfeld, the other, uh, you know, Eric Bowling, um, and other folks. And so eventually every, even good organizations start to get stagnant. They start to get screwed up. They start to get less effective at, at carrying out their core mission if they don't change up the talent. And there's just not a lot of talent coming up in that pool right now. And Sean Hannity, you know, great, uh, great for his audience, but the guy basically does two minutes hate every night. 
stares at the camera. He looks like a damn ham. I mean, he's he's literally become this like giant ham head right. with two black olives in the eye where the eyes are, and he just yells at the camera. And it's just like, you know, I can see this in North Korea. It's it, it, the similarities are so intensely close and and look it's part of that enforcement mechanism that the trump people love so much if you don't if you're not nice tucker carlson will sneer at you okay bring it so you're it's not in your interest per se to you know advise the democrats but you know for for one reason or another it's you know that's you know it, the, the it's an open conversation at this point you know because it's kind of really ironic on the one hand you're like oh that what's you left of the gop at, shocked at two things You'd be shocked at how many Republicans call me for advice, including a lot of Republicans who are full scale, right out, red hat wear in public, okay? Red hat wear in MAGAs in public, who call me to either bitch and moan about how much they fucking hate Donald Trump with the fire of a billion sons, okay? how scared they are of him and his people. And they are terrified of his people. Yeah, his people are so loyal. You don't get voters like that in this country as often. So I, I we know we never do. I, I had a conversation with a member of Congress, did a town hall meeting fairly early on. And he's in a swing district. And he said, I said a couple things that were very mildly critical. I wish the president would approach this differently. I wish he wouldn't tweet about this and sit down with Congress. But before I was off the stage, my daughter's Facebook pages were filling up with death threats. Uh, tell your dad if he doesn't, you know, if you want to grow up with a daddy, you better tell him to be nice to Mr. Trump. These people are crazy. I've had, I mean, I've lived with death threats now for two years. Right. I, You've spoken about uh, this on it, Twitter it's, before. It's been pretty common. And, you know, I've talked about it some. And, you know, these people believe that they operate in a different political universe. And, and part of that is intimidation. Part of that is threats of violence. Part of that is threats of, you know, going after your family and your career and your clients, all that stuff. But the other group of people that are calling me a lot is are Democrats. And I, don't, I haven't worked for any Democrats. You know, I've never, I've, never, I've never worked directly for a Democratic candidate in my career. I worked against only two Republicans my whole career, Donald Trump and, and Roy Moore in Alabama. And, you know, every time I see Doug Jones up there in the U.S. Senate, I'm proud as hell. I was going to say good, good work on that. Because, right? uh, yeah, well, and that, there were two reasons we did that. And one of them was we had a super PAC contact us and said, are you comfortable working where it's probably going to mean we're going to get a Democrat elected? I was like, if it's Roy Moore, Absolutely. I mean, the, the, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and say that my party trumps, trumps, ha ha, um, that my party outweighs the moral responsibility to fight against Nazis, white supremacists, Klansmen, all of whom are running for office this year. And I have, I'm gonna have a little gift for a few of those coming right. up here in a few weeks. Um, and a child molester. I mean, there was nothing. That would have made that, you know, even a momentary choice, okay? But the best part about that was in 2015, Steve Bannon decided since I was anti-Trump, he was going to go after me. And he literally sent an email. With the Breitbart machine? Yeah, with the Breitbart machine. He sent an email to a friend of mine who at the time worked there. And it said, we're going to destroy him. This is going to be so fun. We're going to get his clients. And we're going to fuck him this way and that way. We're going to do the... 
I learned something a long time ago in politics. Revenge will always present itself. There will always be a moment where you can where you can return the favor of somebody who's done something bad to you. When I saw how all in Steve Bannon had gone in Alabama, I would just I was thrilled because I knew we could beat him. I knew we could beat that machine, and you know we helped beat that machine. And so, so while I haven't advised any Democratic candidates at this point, um, I think there are some impressive Democrats out there in the world um, who get it. I mean, you know, I look at Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, a guy who ran in a red seat as a moderate Democrat, and he was successful. Look at Dan McCready in North Carolina in the ninth. He's a free trade um, moderate taxation, uh, you know, light government touch Democrat running in a, in a swing seat previously held by a full-on MAGA. And so, I, and, and there are a lot of those folks out there that are starting to, you know, get the fact that the ideological monocultures on the left and the right are both failure modes and they're both signs of a dysfunctional party. Well, the right has become, the Republican Party has become a single, not just ideological monoculture, but a personality cult where Republican primary contests are now who loves Trump more? Who loves Trump more? Who gets the endorsement? It's not about what are you going to do? What do you believe? Who do you, who do you, who do you want to represent? How do you want to represent them? It is about does Trump love me more or the other guy? Do I love Trump more? How can I show my loyalty to the, to the glorious leader? And uh, I have to tell you, that is an op a market opportunity that Democrats are starting to realize is out there because the selection modes now are producing crappier quality candidates. And candidate quality is always the singular thing. It's always the main thing. So, so I mean, it's like if the Democrats are intent on taking back the White House, and obviously it's anyone's guess, and this, this could either be interpreted on your part as like, what do you think is the best strategy or what do you think is most likely to happen? Um, it's like, who are they running next presidential and, and who could actually do it? Because I don't think, I think everyone's now realizing it's like, you know, without a seismic shift here, Trump isn't guaranteed to be a one-term president. Look, if they nominate Bernie Sanders... Donald Trump will win a 1984-style national landslide, okay? He will destroy him. But it's like, could there be a, you know, a Cory Booker? Could there be one? Yeah, look, Booker? they have a lot of people, they have a lot of cards in the deck right now. And the question they have to ask themselves is, do our litmus tests for a Democratic primary matter more than the viability path in the general? Because look, Kamala Harris... She's articulate. She's good looking. She's got her shit together. She could raise a ton of money. However, she is so goddamn far out in the universe off the far left wing on issues like abortion and gun control. She is disqualified in 35 states right off the bat. Because that was the whole thing. And that was part of what threw the math off for 2016 was they were counting on Obama could actually get white working class voters. And so they thought, oh, Hillary will get those too. That's what they, that's how the math was calculated. And they realized when she lost those, she lost the whole thing. 
and and she didn't and look it's still a long way off and there will be externalities that 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 matter a lot now if the predicate is that the race is, of 2020 is held today if you have a relatively strong economy um, you need a democratic candidate who has extraordinary extraordinary skills okay if Donald Trump's people are not wrapped up in the Mueller probe and the, and the Mueller probe doesn't produce a number of results that, that make it clear the depth of Russian interference in our elections, then you need a Democratic candidate of extraordinary charisma and power. If the trade war puts the economy in the shitter, if, as expected, Mueller starts racking these people up and nailing their hides to the barn, and Donald Trump continues to, you know, govern as a madman, basically, and our, our international relations fall apart. And you end up with the only two things for him to say are, but Gorsuch and but Kavanaugh. Then you're in a really different electoral space. You're in a really different position in terms of, of how your, you know, your candidate has to look. If we're in a desperately bad economic situation... The Democrats need to wheel Joe Biden out there. He needs to say, I'm going to run for one term only. I'm going to turn this shit around. I'm going to fix this country. And then I'm out. Got to win 45 states. Sure. I mean, you notice that it, it was, I suppose, if they're, if it could be called a strategy, they worked pretty quickly. They said fake news. Fake, you know, they want to discredit the media because that's like the first enemy of the, the tyrannical piece. And, and you notice that was very early on, even before he won, it was already it is, it is, look, I mean, that's one of the sad things about the GOP right now. The Republican Party's central definitional philosophy now is not limited government, national security. They're arguing against free trade now. Right. <laughs> what happened? Right. Not, not limited government, not national security, not low taxes, not deficit control, not free trade, not low, not, 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 a, not a government that's smaller, smarter, and better. It's now, fuck the news media. We hate them. That's the, that's the central pillar of the Republican Party. That's it. That's what's left of the GOP. And, and because Trump's personality cult requires no bad news ever, and everything has to be, you know, touch the hem of Trump's robe and you'll be cured, he has to continue this, this media bashing that he does. And he's got a lot of, a lot of enablers on it. But he's got a lot of enablers on it and a lot of people that love the... The, but the liberal media, they love that shit. And it it feeds a certain group of people. Once again, going back to those folks, it's not economic anxiety. It's status anxiety. They don't like smart people. They don't like educated people. They don't like people who come from other countries to make a life here. They don't like immigrants. They don't like brown people in general. And I know that seems like it's a sweeping characterization and all that. And I get, you know, a lot of shit from Trump people like, you're calling us racist. But the formulation obtains. Not all Trump supporters are xenophobic racist assholes. But every single one of the people in this country who is a xenophobic racist asshole is a Trump supporter. Sure, every single one. 2016 happened. You, you were not afraid to speak out on, uh, you know, on Twitter. And, and you know, and, and it's sort of like... On both sides, you've become a bit of a firebrand, and and you know here you are. So, what has that process been like? Being having to be a little more of a personality in the equation. Well, here's the thing: I set out every day 
to make sure that the person you see on Twitter and and the person you see talking on TV at night, that the delta between that and the real me is very narrow. There are a few areas I don't delve into too, too far. You know, uh, I try to keep family stuff generally off the air. Um, but for the most part, what you see is what you get. And the people who've known me in the process and in politics for a long time, you know, they, they recognize, you know, that it's Rick. I mean, I'm, I am who I am. I'm blunt to a fault. I talk too fast. I, I have 27 different ideas about every goddamn thing under the sun all the time. I've always got 500 irons in every fire. Um, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm, I am a guy with, with very pronounced opinions. Um, and, and I hope that people see that I love the English language. I mean, I hope people see that. And, and I, and, and, you know, in, in terms of writing, it's been, you know, my friend, John Avalon, who was the, uh, editor of the Daily Beast. He and I have gone back, we go back 20 plus years in politics together. Um, right after the election, he goes, you were going to need an outlet. You were going to need a catharsis. You're going to need something to say. You're going to need a place to say stuff. I want you to do it here. And so I've had, uh, God, I don't even know how many columns now. I mean, basically I write one a week for the Beast for two years now. So I really, that has been a great venue. And of course my book is coming out on August 7th. Um, so I've had a great, I had a great time writing the book. I really, yeah. Can you talk a little, uh, that was going to be my next question is a little bit about the book. Obviously it's the title. It's got a great cover. It's, you know, Trump has his dainty hands and everything, you know, um, I, I'm sure there's a little bit of an angle to, you know, how your approach, everything Trump touches dies is what it talks about. What is, what is kind of the angle? What is kind of the, the log line and everything within it? Well, look, the book starts out basically as a description of how we got here. And it goes through these sort of bishy Republicans who compromise themselves again and again and again and again for Trump. And over and over and over, they made these moral choices and these political choices to look away. They, they promised themselves, oh, there, there must be a better version of this guy hidden away behind all the bullshit and the bluster. Um, and there were a lot of people who played a very dumb calculus, you know, and I've, most of my work in the last 10 years has been in the super PAC space. Okay. So, you know, I'd be helping three U S senators through a super PAC or five members of Congress or 12 members of Congress. It's various associations and super PACs wanted to help. So I talked to all these donors. I go, I go pitch the ideas to them and we're going to help these guys and you know, give us a million dollars and we'll spend it for you. Well, so I talked to all these guys and I, I started picking up this weird thing in, in 15. It's like, well, yeah, I'm with Jeb, but I'm going to wait until Trump takes out Marco. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back Ted Cruz, but I want to make sure that Trump takes out Marco and Rand and Jeb first. Or I'm with Ben Carson and we're going to try to skate under the radar while he blows everybody else up. Or, you know... Or these people that hope for like some sort of like magical realism moment where Trump dropped out of a heart attack and they would just wait. Oh, he's going to screw himself up no matter what. So, and all those folks come in for a pretty good beatdown on the front end of the book. The second part of it is, you know, a description of, of the, the political culture he's built in this country. And, you know, the, the villains that are around this guy and this island of misfit toys of his, of his people 
that he has picked the, I mean, I would rather seriously drive down to the Greyhound bus station and pick out a dozen random people than the average Trump staffing at any given agency because they are some of the weirdest edge cases. They are, they are, they are a combination of venality, corruption, stupidity, you know, bullheadedness, racism. It's, it's, it is a farrago of the most of the most ridiculous. I mean, you couldn't it's, write. It's these almost people. funny, but it's also yeah, scary. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a George Fidu farce. I mean, you couldn't write these people as characters because in Hollywood they'd say, "Oh, come on, man, that's too yeah. much." You're, you're Steve Bannon. That's ridiculous. ridiculous. There's no way a guy would wear th- three three polo, three polo <laughs> shirts and look like a homeless hobo. There's no way Seb Gorka could be real with that with that dark dyed beard and the Drakkar Noir scent all over him. You know, no way. That's a, but it is. And these are the people that are governing our country and governing it terribly. And, you know, and I, I go through and I, I look at, you know, where the, where the death of conservatism and of the conservative movement is sort of built into the DNA of Trumpism. If you choose Trumpism and nationalist populism, you are killing and abandoning conservatism. That's it. Game's over. And what you're getting out of that is statism. What you're getting out of that is a government that's bigger and, and more capable of, of impinging on human freedom. Because, you know, when you build a police state, somebody's going to use it to police people. When you build a statist institute, set of institutions that control parts of the economy, they're going to control the economy. You know, when Barack Obama was, was trying to get green energy stuff booted up during his stimulus plan, it seems like so long ago... Um, Republicans lost their damn minds. He's picking winners and losers. Paul Ryan you know, gave this passionate speech about how this is the worst thing in the world. We can't have this. This is a government intervening in private business. Donald Trump does that every damn day. I mean, it's things like the coal industry. He's trying to revive the coal industry. It is a dead industry. Barack Obama didn't kill coal. Natural gas killed coal. Barack Obama didn't put those miners out of work. Robots put those miners out of work. So if we discovered tomorrow we had to have coal because it cured cancer, you know what would be digging that coal out of the ground? Robots. So it's this very cruel lie. It's this very like this, this, this sort of cruel nostalgia for the past that he's tried to, to convince these people it's real. So we, we go into that a bit. And essentially, you know, I, the book is very much my voice. I'm not writing it as a policy nerd. I'm not writing it as a, as you know, one of these fainting couch. Oh, I've, the civility of the party. Uh, you know, I'm a fighter. I'm a brawler. I'm 54 years old and I can still kick ass. So I go in there and I, I, I tear shit up. And it's, it's. I think it's a fun read. And the folks that have started reviewing it and looking at it have enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I saw one of the preview reviews today, and it said, "No one escapes the whip." I'm like, yes. That's my new tagline right there. Well, I'm looking forward to checking it out. What has been the most unexpected aspect in this first, you know, I guess what, year and a half or, you know, you kind of lose track of time, but it's like, there's got to be some things where you're like, I was certain it was going to go this way. And it's like, he didn't do that. Or they did, you know, what, what is surprising? I've actually, his behavior and the, 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 I think the most surprising thing is Wall Street's risk tolerance for Trump. Yeah, the market's that, that, in good shape And right we'll now. look. And those, the markets are still floating on a gigantic ocean of, of free money. The QE, you know, maybe may have technically ended, but they are still floating on a gigantic pad of many, many, many trillions of dollars. And 
and Wall Street has, you know, overinterpreted the ability of these of both the tax bill and of the regulatory changes to keep the economy afloat. And it's weird because we came out of a focus group a couple of weeks ago for a client who was curious about, you know, why does why do these middle class people love the tax bill? Why do they believe the economy is so good? And the interesting thing was this. They're like, yeah, it's the economy's good and we're happy. And we're glad we're, you know, we're glad their jobs are coming back in, you know, this this it was in three different mid battleground states. But I don't have any savings. And I don't think that if I lose my job, it's necessarily gonna be something I can get right away. And I'm still worried my house is underwater from 2008. And all these, these like little nervous ticks out there. And so a lot of Republicans are defending Trump because they feel like I have to say the economy's great because otherwise it's a critique of Donald. And I think that there is, an, there is a knowledge even among his supporters, that the tax bill was tuned to billionaire hedge fund guys on Wall Street. I'm, I'm saying this as a conservative. I love low taxes. I want low taxes across the board because I think that that could release trillions of dollars of productive capacity in our economy. What this tax bill was designed to do, and I, I, I know one of the chief lobbyists who worked this bill. This is a person who works for the financial services industry, known for 30 years sat in Mitch McConnell's office writing the bill. And I was texting back and forth with him one day. I was like, are you kidding me with this? And he's like, listen, because my clients are thrilled. They're delighted. I'm like, so what, I said, do you think, what, what, what are you going to spend for jobs out in the economy? What's it going to do? And he's like, how the fuck do I know? He doesn't care. This was crony capitalism at its very, very finest. And as a conservative, and as a person who believes in fiscal probity and responsibility in government, I found it unbelievably irresponsible and reckless, but you know what? Uh, it's not doing what they thought it would do. Okay? Barack Obama was getting the same kind of basic return rates on GDP. Economic growth to make this bill pay for itself, they were, they, the projections were ludicrous from the start, and they haven't hit any of them, and they're not going to hit Five, six percent GDP. Yeah. They were talking about, yeah, they were talking about five point. Actually, it, what I was told was it takes 5.3 to break even. To break stellar. For you know. two years. It's not going to happen. Now we've got gas prices rising. We've got the trade war looming. So what happens when the market goes tits up? When they finally, when their risk tolerance is finally reached, and they like, and the bulls say, "Here we are." The Fed's out of ability to keep squeezing out QE. They're not going to. Interest do that. rates are already still pretty low. But yeah, interest rates are still pretty, pretty far as close to the minimum rate. There are signs that we're playing 2008 all over again. You know, these all of a sudden the pop-ups of these these lenders with people with low credit with high with, with bad credit risk, you know, people are suddenly getting houses and cars with no credit history and all we've played this thing again and again. And we're gonna end up with, you know, if we end up with Donald Trump having a crashed out economy and having to bail out Wall Street, he will do it. The Goldman guys around him will see to it that he does it. I don't think that, that vast middle class out there who claims that economic anxiety is what drove them to support Donald Trump is gonna get a bailout. They're not going to get that help. So, Today's episode is brought to you by Fly Mouthwash. Fly Mouthwash is an ultra-concentrated mouthwash that packs a whopping 60 uses into a pocket-sized bottle. Just dilute with water as needed. I use the stuff myself, tastes great, and knocks out bad breath real fast. Check it out at flymouthwash.com. One kind of interesting case, I think, is like what happened to Paul Ryan. You know, it's like 
There was a time I remember I was just learning about politics, learning, you know, what intergovernmental debt versus public debt was. It was very interesting. It was like, oh, wow, entitlements are really, there's no long-term plan, blah, blah, blah. That was Tea Party. It was 2010. Right. It's like Paul Ryan's like, well, my work here is done. It's like, Paul, you pass a big tax cut and nothing's changed with entitlements. All you did was defund underfunded programs. How was your work done? Did he get scared? What happened? Donald Trump's base is old. Donald Trump's base is white. Donald Trump's base gets Social Security, and they get Medicare, and they get Medicaid, and they get disability. There is no way he will ever, ever, ever touch something that hurts his base. Never going to happen. Now, Paul Ryan was right all along. We have an impending, looming financial disaster in this country. These programs are unsustainable. They will go broke. They will go bankrupt. They will drag this country down with it. It will be the largest sovereign debt crisis you've ever seen in the entire history of the world when Medicare goes under. And it's gonna. Responsibility for doing it is the hardest, stickiest, crappiest job in DC. Nobody wants to grab the shitty end of that stick. Nobody wants to play that game. Nobody wants to do it. But he was pushing it for years. He was right to push it for years. He was responsible. He was an adult. He knew Barack Obama would never do it, but he thought Romney he could, might. He thought President Romney might. And I think President Romney would have. And he thought Hillary might. Because for all her failings, she was still a grown-up. She was still an adult. She she could still look at the books and go, hmm. Now, Donald Trump is a serial bankruptcy artist. Donald Trump is a guy who's gone through his whole life not paying his debts to vendors. And so you end up with a situation where Trump has projected this into the, the, the current world. Trump doesn't, he, he's always you know, run on the greater fool theory. And so he's always had somebody, some other idiot to lend him money. He thinks there's always going to be some other idiot. Well, guess what? Our banker is China. They buy our T-bills. They own our debt. A whole shit ton of our debt. Oh, so in, what's he do? He launches a trade war against them. Now, if China decides they're going to sit out a couple of T-bill auctions, the market could be down 50% in a day. Um, and again, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, in order for those programs to function, you need economic growth. Where right now at a level of economic growth that is probably unsustainable in the end in terms of, of you know, catching up to the needs of these programs. We also have, look, I, I'm, I'm at the very last day of the baby boom. I died the day, or I was born the day before Kennedy died. So that's, that's sort of like ideological marker of Kennedy's death being the end of the boomers. That's me. I'm the very last, very, 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 very last. I don't think like a boomer, but I get it. I, I, you know, I, I see that world. The older ones, folks are my parents' age, and they're in their mid and late 70s. They're going to cost a lot of money in the next few years on Medicare. A lot, because everybody wants more services now. States are expanding Medicare dramatically because healthcare costs are so out of control. So nothing has been done to address this. Nothing will be done to address it. The crisis is being kicked down the road to the next president. And 
realistically, Medicare is probably 2024, 2026 until it goes belly up, until it's unsustainable. Social Security is going to grind its way on forever and ever. It's the third rail. It's never, I mean, we're going to always pay the damn bills, but you know, we're going to go into more debt. We've got $20.2 trillion as of a couple days ago. It's going to get higher and higher and higher. I remember there's a documentary IOUSA in mm-hmm. 2007. Yeah, yeah. That was where yeah. I first learned like about that. And it was like the number at the time, 8.7 trillion. That was during Bush. And it's like, you know, a lot of people don't realize like debt just seems like this impossibly large number, which it is, but it's like, man, that really starting post nine 11, it's like most of the debt started with George W. Bush in terms of the war. I mean, we financed the war, uh, you know, we were already operating at a giant deficit. The fact that we've expanded defense spending to nearly $800 billion a year. When I was at the Pentagon, Berlin Wall collapsed. I like to say we pulled it down, but however you want to phrase it. We're, we were talking about budgets back then of 235 to $255 billion, and they were shrinking. They were flat. The acceleration under Bush and Obama and frankly, the, the, you know, Obama put the brakes on on a few things, but not really, yeah. was tremendous. And now Trump is, you know, a man who's obsessed with the toys rather than the actual capabilities. And his base likes that too, you know, big Oh, they know, love the oh, missile parade shit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a juvenile authoritarian fantasy thing. Oh, we have to build 50 bombers yeah. instead of two. And, you know, that famous meeting in the Pentagon in the tank, in the, in the Joint Chiefs of Staff tank, where Trump finally went over there for his national security briefing on defense posture, nuclear defense posture. And he said, I want to build 10 times more, 10 times as many missiles and, and nuclear bombs as we have right now. There's nothing more expensive in the world. And we, so this country right now, we do not have the capability to build nuclear weapons. We're recycling old ones. We basically took the nuclear uh, infrastructure apart. We don't have a, a, a bomb-making system anymore. We're recycling old weapons. Donald Trump goes in and says, "I want to build, you know, all a brand new set of nukes, all this gold-plated." We're talking, of course. We're talking if he was to do that, just switching on the line again, basically rebuilding the nuclear complex that we we essentially abandoned after the Cold War ended, would cost. And I, I, I know these people. I know guys who do that. I mean, I know people that are in that world who, who are at Lanel and Sandia and have been around the block and are, you know, nuclear surety guys. He asked a friend of mine, and he said, he goes, we've already produced a couple of back-of-the-envelope projections. And he said the number is somewhere around 18 to $25 trillion dollars. <laughs> so, over a so, ten over a ten year period. So you know more that would more than double the current national right. debt. Right. And and it's 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 not possible. You want to make some other changes and some choices? Great. You want to stop building the F thirty five? Yeah, maybe you got some. Maybe you can do a budget stream that way. You want to cut the size of the army down by a couple divisions? You may have a budget stream that way. You could probably you know find your way to do that. You're not going to do that if you don't have economic growth in the positive. You're not going to do that if you don't address the, the, the gigantic fact that two-thirds of our budget is taken up by Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. The, those, those, are the big, those are the big kahunas. Those are the things you have to face if you're going to be a responsible governing adult, but we're not going to face them under Trump. It's just not going to happen. It's a little bit of looking forward, right? 
Um, there's a lot of like, what if, right? If the economy sure. collapses, you know, 2020 goes a different way and the midterms affect it, right? And there's a lot of, of what ifs, but even so, so a little bit of that, but even, even just philosophically, we're in this interesting place where you've got the people that aren't part of the Trump cult, um, which is most of them. Um, and you've got even some people on the call it moderate left that aren't necessarily looking for an opportunity for, you know, socialism to take hold, but, you know, or have, you know, some social conscience or at least social impact. It's like, how do you see, and it's funny too, because there's, there's personalities on the left that you'll interact with now because, you know, there is a, a commonality. So if you had to take an optimistic spin, and I don't know how optimistic you are, how do you see a possible future looking where we can at least defeat the current cult and be in a situation where we still have these problems, but maybe we can at least make action to address them in the same way you said that a theoretical president Hillary might have been willing to at least talk about it with a Paul Ryan. I think what we're going to have to do, and I'm pretty sure that we're, I'm pretty sure that, that this country is always driven by a sort of felicitous hand whether you believe in God or whether you believe in the greatness of our system or whether you believe that we're just the dumbest lucky bastards on earth, America gets up to the cliff any number of ways and times and we get ourselves off the cliff. And we make mistakes and we work hard to rectify them. We work hard to bend the arc back in the right direction. I could foresee an administration in the, in the post-Trump era that is much more uh, small C conservative, much more small D democratic, uh, and frankly, that, that has a grown up moment of recognition that, that playing this nationalist partisan or the nationalist populist game has been a dangerous failure and that failing to recognize that the future is coming at us very quickly is a failure of both parties. I mean, we both, we right now have the democratic party that still thinks well, if we just have enough regulations and big enough labor unions, we're going to fix everything. On the Republican side, you have guys who say, well, if the, if the, if the, if the glorious leader will just tell companies what to do and we cut all the other regulations, we'll have, we'll, everything will be great. Neither of those options works. I'm not just splitting the baby here. I'm not just doing the Solomon thing. But what I am saying is I think we may end up at a point where there are some technocratic people from the center left and center right who sit down and say, okay, we've got actual problems. We've got real shit to face. Our problem isn't imaginary gangs of MS-13 toddlers um, creeping up from Mexico to take our jobs and rape our dogs. Our job is to get this economy you know, positioned for the future. Our job is to get our population um, out of a set of, of, of you know, crises, financial and otherwise, that lead them to live in absolute terror, that an that a insurance bill is going to crush them that a car repair is going to get them thrown out of their house. This, this anxiety people feel in this country is because both parties have taken care of Wall Street for a long time. Both parties are guilty of it. Because you know what? You know who loved Barack Obama? Goldman Sachs. He made them a fucking ton of money. You know, you know who loves Donald Trump? Goldman Sachs. He's making them a ton of money. And both parties have gotten to this crony capitalist game where they take care of pharma and the banking industry and, and the hospitals and the insurance companies. And they don't care. Neither party has given a shit about regular people for a long time. And I think we're going to end up at a point 
where, where not only out of responsibility, but out of goodness, people on the center left and center right come together and say, okay, we've had enough of this on both sides. And we got to do something better for this country because we deserve it as a country. Well said. Um, you know, uh, everything Trump touches dies out August 7th. 7th. August uh, 7th. Yeah. Possibly already out when this, when this airs. Um, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having yeah. me here today. Thanks. Thank you. That's all for today. Feel free to follow us on social media at Key People Podcast or at keypeoplepodcast.com.